Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. I'm going to break in for just one second and say this book, From the Corner of His Eye, when I initially read this book, I was grasped immediately. And one of the beautiful things about reading a book is being able to lose hours to that book. You know what I'm saying? Like when you start reading the book at 8 a.m. and you look up and it's 1 a.m. and you're like, that was a great book. There's nothing quite like that. I'm not doing that here. I'm giving y'all like 45 to 55 minutes of a book and then I'm like, all right, we'll, we'll get to the next chapter in the next episode. But y'all aren't beholden to listen to me read to you y'all can easily get this book i i put the link to it in every show note how to buy it i don't get any money from it i used to get money from it but nobody bought the book so i don't get money from it so you can go on amazon you can go to your library and check this book out and read it because this book is so wonderful and yet I feel like it starts off so, it's like, it's not slow. It's not slow at all. It's like when Carlos Santana comes out to play one of his songs. But before he starts off playing, the, before he actually plays a song that you know, he'll play like live, of course, in concert. He'll play like, a minute and 30 seconds of him strumming a few notes. Something that you don't know blends into that song. And then he gets going and it's just like magical. It's still Carlos Santana playing the music. It's just not a song that you're really used to hearing. And so I wonder if y'all are willing to sit through what y'all are sitting through to get to what I know is coming. Because I'm never going to spoil anything about these books. I'm just going to tell you that this is one of my favorite books of all time for a reason. I hope that y'all know that I would not bring something to you that I knowingly don't like. Except for Horson. We don't speak about that here. Chapter 45. Though others might see magic in the world, Eden was enthralled only with mechanism. The great destructive machine of nature grinding everything to dust. Yet wonder suddenly bloomed in him at the sight of the ace bearing his nephew's name. During the preparation of the cards, Barty had fallen asleep in his mother's arms. But with the revelation of his name on the ace, he had awakened again. Perhaps because with his head resting on her bosom, he was alarmed by the sudden acceleration of her heartbeat. How was that done? Agnes asked Obadiah. The old man assumed the solemn and knowing expression of one guarding mysteries, a sphinx without headdress or mane. If I told you, dear lady, it wouldn't be magic anymore. Merely a trick. But you don't understand. She recounted the extraordinary draw of aces during the fortune-telling session Friday evening. Out of a sphinx face, Obadiah conjured a smile that lifted the point of his white goatee when he turned his head to look at Edom. Ah, so long ago, he murmured, as though speaking to himself. So long ago, but I remember now. He winked at Edom. The wink startled and baffled Edom. Oddly, 
He thought of the mysterious, disembodied, and eternally unwinking eye on the floating pinnacle of the pyramid that was on the back of any $1 bill. Illuminati! In recounting the fortune-telling session, Agnes had not told the magician about the four jacks of spades, only about the ace of diamonds and hearts. She never wore her worries for anyone to see, and though she had made a joke of the appearance of the fourth knave on Friday, Edom knew that it had deeply troubled her. Either Obadiah intuited Agnes's fear, or he was motivated by her kindness to reveal his method after all. I'm embarrassed to say what you saw wasn't real magician's work. Crude deception. I chose the Ace of Diamonds exactly because it represents wealth and fortune telling. So it's a positive card that people respond well to. The Ace with your boy's name on it was prepared beforehand. Insert it face up toward the bottom of the deck, so a middle cut wouldn't reveal it. But you didn't know my Barty's name when we came here. Oh, yes. When he phoned, Reverend Collins told me all about you and Bartholomew. At the front door, when I asked the boy's name, I already knew it. And I was just setting up this little trick for you. Agnes smiled. How clever. With a sigh, Obadiah differed. Not clever. Crude. Before my hands became these great knuckled lumps, I could have dazzled you. As a young man, he had performed first in nightclubs catering to Negroes and in theaters like Harlem's Apollo. During World War II, he had been a part of a USO troop entertaining soldiers throughout the Pacific, later in North Africa, and following D-Day in Europe. After the war, for a while, I was able to get more mainstream work. Racially, things were changing, but I was getting older too, and the entertainment business is always looking for someone young, fresh, so I never made it big. Lord, I never even made a medium, but I got along okay. Until, by the early 1950s, my booking agent found it harder and harder to line up good dates, good clubs. In addition to delivering a honey raisin pear pie, Agnes had come to offer Obadiah Sephirat a year's work. Not performing magic, but talking about it. Through her efforts, the Bright Beach Public Library sponsored an ambitious oral history project financed by two private foundations and by an annual strawberry festival. Local retirees were enlisted to record the stories of their lives so that their experiences, insights, and knowledge wouldn't be lost to generations yet unborn. Not incidentally, the project started as a vehicle by which some older citizens in financial crisis could receive money in a way that spared their dignity gave them hope, and repaired their damaged self-esteem. Agnes asked Obadiah to enrich the project by accepting a one-year grant to record the story of his life with the help of the head librarian. Clearly touched and intrigued, the magician nevertheless circled the offer in search of reasons to decline, before at last shaking his head sadly. I doubt that I'm the caliber of person that you're looking for, Miss Lampion. I wouldn't be entirely a credit to your project. Nonsense. What on earth are you talking about? Holding up his misshapen hands, knobby knuckles towards Agnes, Obadiah said, How do you think they became like this? Arthritis? she ventured. Poker. Keeping his hands high, like a penitent confessing sin at a revival meeting and asking God to wash him clean, Obadiah said, My specialty was close-up magic. Oh, I pulled a rabbit out of a hat more than once. Silk scars from thin air. Dove from silk scars. But close was my love. Coins. But mostly... 
cards. As he said cards, the magician turned a knowing look towards Edom, eliciting from him a responding frown of puzzlement. But I had greater facility with cards than most magicians. I trained with Moses Moon, greatest card mechanic of his generation. On mechanic, he again glanced meaningfully at Edom, who felt a response was expected. When he opened his mouth, he could think of nothing to say, except that at Sanriku, Japan, on June 15, 1896, a 110-foot-high wave, triggered by an undersea quake, killed 27,100 people, most water in prayer at a Shinto festival. Even at Edom, this seemed to be an inappropriate comment, so he said nothing. Do you know what a car mechanic does, Miss Lampion? Call me Agnes, and I assume car mechanics don't repair cards. Slowly rotating his raised hands before his eyes, as if he saw them young and supple-fingered, the magician described the amazing manipulations that a master car mechanic could perform. Though he spoke without flash or filigree, he made these feats of skill sound more sorcerous than hairs from hats, doves from scars, and blondes bisected by buzz saws. Edom listened with the rapt attention of a man whose most daring act had been the purchase of a yellow and white four-country squire station wagon. When I couldn't get enough nightclub and theater bookings for my magic act anymore, I turned to gambling. Sitting forward in his armchair, Obadiah lowered his hands to his knees, and in thoughtful silence, he stared at them. Then, I traveled city to city, seeking high-stake poker games. They're illegal, but not hard to find. I cheated for a living. He had never taken too much from any one game. He was a discreet thief, charming his victims with amusing patter. Because he was so ingratiating and seemed only mildly lucky, no one begrudged him his winnings. Soon, he was more flush than he had ever been as a magician. Living high, when I wasn't on the road, I had a fine house here in Bright Beach. Not this rental shack I'm in now, but a nice little place with an ocean view. You can guess what went wrong. Greed. So easy, taking money from the rubes. Soon, instead of peeling off a little from each game, he sought bigger kills. So I drew attention to myself, raised suspicions. One night in St. Louis, this rube recognized me from my performing days, even though I had changed my looks. It was a high-stakes game, but the players weren't high class. They ganged up on me, beat me, and then smashed my hands, one finger at a time, with the tire iron. Edom shivered. At least the tidal wave of San Rico was quick. That was five years ago. After more surgeries than I care to remember, I was left with these. He raised his goblin hands again. There's pain in humid weather, less when it's dry. I could take care of myself, but I'll never be a card mechanic again, or a magician. For a moment, none of them spoke. The silence was as flawless as the preternatural hush reputed to precede the biggest quakes. Even Barty appeared to be transfixed. Then Agnes said, Well, it's clear to me that you won't be able to talk out your life in just one year. Should be a two-year grant. Obadiah frowned. I'm a thief. You were a thief, and you suffered terribly. It wasn't my choice to suffer, believe me. You feel remorse, though, said Agnes. I can see you do. 
and not just because of what happened to your hands. More than remorse, the magician said. Shame. I come from good people. I wasn't raised to be a cheat. Sometimes, trying to figure out how I went wrong, I think it wasn't the need for money that ruined me. At least, not that alone. Not even that primarily. It was pride in my skill with the cards. Frustrated pride because I wasn't getting enough nightclub work to show off as much as I wanted to. There's a valuable lesson in that, Agnes said. Others can learn from it if you care to share. But if you want to record your life only up to the card cheating, that's okay too. Even that far, it's a fascinating journey. A story that shouldn't be lost with you when you pass on. Libraries are packed with biographies of movie stars and politicians, most of them not capable of as much meaningful self-analysis as you would get from a toad. We don't need to know more about celebrities, lies Obadiah. What might help us, what might even save us, is knowing more about the lives of real people who never made it even medium, but know where they came from and why. Edom, who had never made it big, medium, or little, watched his sister blur before him. He strove to contain the shimmering hotness in his eyes. His love was not for magic, and his pride was not in any skill he possessed, for he possessed none worth noting. His love was for his good sister. She was his pride, too. And he felt that his small life had precious meaning as long as he was able to drive her on days like this, carry her pies, and occasionally make her smile. Agnes, said the magician, you better start meeting with that librarian now to record your own life. If you don't get started for another 40 years, then you'll need a whole decade of talking to get it all down. More often than not, in a social situation, regardless of its nature, there came a time where Edom had to bolt. And here now was the time. Not because he floundered at a loss of words. Not because he became panicked that he would say the wrong thing or would knock over his coffee cup or would in some way prove himself foolish or as clumsy as a clown in full pratfall. But in this instance, because he didn't want to bring his tears into Agnes's day. Recently, she had had too many tears in her life. And though these were not tears of anguish, though they were tears of love, he didn't want to burden her with them. He bolted up from the sofa, saying too loudly, Canned hams! But at once he realized this made no sense, none to zip. So he searched desperately for something coherent to say. Potatoes, corn chips, which was equally ridiculous. <laughs> now Obadiah was staring at him with that concerned alarm you saw on the faces of people watching an epileptic in an uncontrolled fit. So Edom plunged across the living room as though he were falling off a ladder, toward the front door, struggling to explain himself as he went. We brought some, there are some, I'll get some... If you wouldn't mind having some, we have boxes in the car, but I'll bring them in. Boxes of boxes, well, not boxes of boxes, of course not. It's boxes of stuff, you know, stuff st stuff we brought in boxes. Yanking open the front door, lurching across the threshold onto the porch, he thought at last of the word he needed, and he cried over his shoulder, Groceries! With triumph and relief. At the tailgate of the station wagon, where he could be seen by neither Obadiah nor Agnes, Edom leaned against the ford, gazed into the beautiful gray sky, and wept. These were tears of gratitude for having Agnes in his small life, but to his surprise, he discovered in his heart that these were also tears for his murdered mother, who had possessed Agnes's compassion but too little of Agnes's strength. Agnes's humility but none of her fearlessness. 
Agnes's faith, but not Agnes's abiding hope. A flock of seagulls cried down the vast sky. At first, Edom followed them by their exhilarated voices until his vision cleared, and then he watched their wings like white blades sheared the gray woolen clouds. Sooner than he expected, he was able to carry the groceries into the house. Chapter 46 Ned, call me Nettie, Nathic, was as slim as a flute, with a flute quantity of holes in his head from which thought could escape before the pressure of it built into an unpleasant music within his skull. His voice was always soft and harmonious, but frequently he spoke allegro, sometimes even pratissimo, and in spite of his mellow tone, Nettie, at maximum tempo, was as irritating to the ear as bagpipes bleeding out bolero, if such a thing was possible. His profession was cocktail piano, though he didn't have to earn a living at it. He had inherited a fine four-story house in the good neighborhood of San Francisco and also a sufficient income from a trust fund to meet his needs if he avoided extravagance. Nevertheless, he worked five evenings a week at an elegant lounge in one of the grand old hotels on Knob Hill, playing highly refined drinking songs for tourists, businessmen from out of town, affluent gay men who stubbornly continued to believe in romance in the age of value flashover substance and unmarried heterosexual couples who are working up a bus to ensure that their rigorously planned adulteries would seem glamorous. Nettie occupied the entire spacious fourth floor of the house. The third and second floors were each divided into two apartments, the ground floor and the four studio units, all of which he rented out. Shortly after four o'clock, here was Nettie, already spiff for work in a black tuxedo, pleated white shirt, and black bow tie with a red bud rose as a boutonniere, standing just inside the open door to Celestina White's studio apartment, holding forth in tedious detail as to the reasons why she was in flagrant breach of her lease and obligated to move by the end of the month. The issue was Angel, lone baby in an otherwise childless building, her crying, though she rarely cried, her noisy play, though Angel wasn't yet strong enough to shake a rattle and the potential she represented for damage to the premises, though she was not yet able to get out of a bassinet on her own, let alone go out the plaster with a ball-peen hammer. Celestina was unable to talk reason to him, and even her mother, Grace, who was living there for the interim and who was always oil on the stormiest of waters, couldn't bring a moment's calm to the velvet squall that was Nettie Nathic in full blow. He had learned about the baby five days ago and he had been building force ever since, like a tropical depression aspiring to hurricane status. The current San Francisco rental market was tight, with far more renters than property for lease. Now, as for five days, Celestina tried to explain that she needed at least 30 days, and preferably until the end of February, to find suitable and affordable quarters. She had her classes at the Academy of Art College during the day, her waitressing job six evenings a week, and she couldn't leave the care of the little angel entirely to Grace, not even temporarily. Nettie talked when Celestina paused for breath, talked over her when she didn't pause, heard only his mellifluous voice and was pleased to conduct both sides of the conversation. Wearing her down as surely as, though far more rapidly than, the sand-filled winds of Egypt diminished the pharaoh's pyramids. He talked to the first polite, excuse me, of the tall man who stepped into the open doorway behind him through the second and third, and then with an abruptness that was as miraculous as any cure at the shrine of lords, he fell silent when the visitor put a hand on his shoulder, eased him gently aside, and entered the apartment.
Dr. Walter Lipscomb's fingers were longer and more supple than the pianist's, and he had the presence of a great symphony conductor for whom a raised baton was superfluous, who commanded attention by the mere fact of his entry. A tower of authority and self-possession, he said to the Bacalm Nettie, I am this child's physician. She was born underweight and held in hospital to cure an ear infection. You sound as if you have an incipient case of bronchitis that will manifest in 24 hours, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to be responsible for this baby being endangered by viral disease. Blinking as if slapped, Nettie said, I have a valid lease. Dr. Liscomb inclined his head slightly toward the pianist, in the manner of a stern headmaster about to emphasize a lesson with the sharp twist of the offending boy's ear. Miss White and the baby will have vacated these premises by the end of the week unless you insist on bothering them with your chatter. For every minute you harass them, their departure will be extended one day. Although Dr. Lipscomb spoke almost as softly as a long-winded pianist, and though the physician's narrow face was homely and devoid of any trace of violent temperament, Nettie Nathick flinched from him and retreated across the threshold into the doorway. Good day, sir, Lipscomb said, closing the door in Nettie's face, possibly compressing his nose and bruising his boot and air. Angel was lying on a towel on a convertible sofa, where Grace had just changed her diaper. As Lipscomb picked up the freshened baby, Grace said, That was as effective as any minister's wife could have been with an impossible parishioner. And, oh, do I wish we could sometimes be that pointed. Yours is a harder job than mine, Lipscomb told Grace, dandling Angel as he spoke. I have no doubt of that. Celestina, surprised by Lipscomb's arrival, was still mentally numb from Nettie's harangue. Doctor, I didn't know you were coming. I didn't know it myself until I realized I was right in your neighborhood. I assumed your mother and Angel would be here, and I hoped you might be. If I'm intruding. No, no, I just didn't. I wanted you to know I'm leaving medicine. For the baby? asked Grace, her face knitting a worried frown. Cupping Angel entirely in his big hands, smiling at her, he said, Oh, oh no, Miss White. This looks like a healthy young lady to me. No medicine required. Angel, as if in God's own hands, stared with round-eyed wonder at the physician. I mean, said Dr. Lipscomb, that I'm selling my practice and putting an end to my medical career. I wanted you to know. Quitting? Celestina said. But you're still young. Would you like a little tea and a piece of crumb cake? Grace asked as smoothly as if, in the big book of etiquette for ministers' wives, this was a preferred response to an announcement of a startling career change. Actually, Miss White, it's an occasion for champagne if you have nothing against spirits. <laughs> Some Baptists are opposed to drink, Doctor, but we're the wicked variety, though all we have is a warm bottle of Chardonnay. Liscomb said, we're only two and a half blocks from the best Armenian restaurant in the city. I'll dash over there. Bring back some chill bubbly and an early dinner, if you'll allow me. Without you, we were doomed to let our meatloaf. To Celestina, Lipscomb said, If you're not busy, of course. This is her night off, said Grace. Quitting medicine, Celestina asked, baffled by his announcement and his upbeat attitude. So we must celebrate. The end of my career and your move. Suddenly remembering the doctor's assurance to Nettie that they would be out of this building by week's end, Celestina said, But we've nowhere to go. Handing Angel to Grace, Lipscomb said, I own some investment properties. 
There's a two-bedroom unit available on one of those. Shaking her head, Celestina said, I can only pay for a studio apartment, something small. Whatever you're paying here, that's what you'll pay for the new place, Lipscomb said. Celestina and her mother exchanged a meaningful glance. The physician saw the look and understood it. A blush pinked his long, pale face. Celestina, you're quite beautiful, and I'm sure you've learned to be wary of men, but I swear that my intentions are entirely honorable. Oh, I didn't think. Yes, you did. And it's exactly what experience has no doubt taught you to think. But I'm 47, and you're 20, almost 21, and we're from two different worlds, which I respect. I respect you and your wonderful family. Your centeredness, your certainty. I want to do this only because it's what I owe you. Why should you owe me anything? Well, actually, I owe Femi. It's what she said between her two deaths on a delivery table that's changed my life. Rowena loves you, Femi had told him, briefly repressing the effects of her stroke to speak with clarity. Beasel and Feasel are safe with her. Messages from his lost wife and children where they waited for him beyond this life. Beseechingly, with no intention of intimacy, he took Celestina's hands in his. For years, as an obstetrician, I brought life into the world, but I didn't know what life was, didn't grasp the meaning of it, that it even had a meaning. Before Rowena, Harry, and Danny went down in that airplane, I was already empty. After losing them, I was worse than empty. Celestina, I was dead inside. Femi gave me hope. I can't repay her, but I can do something for her daughter and for you, if you'll let me. Her hands trembled in his, and his shook as well. When she didn't at once accept his generosity, he said, All my life, I've lived just to get through the day. First survival, then achievement, acquisition, houses, investments, antiques. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But it didn't fill the emptiness. Maybe one day I'll return to medicine. But that's a hectic existence. And right now I want peace. Calm. Time to reflect. Whatever I do from here on, I want my life to have a degree of purpose it's never had before. Can you understand that? I was raised to understand it, says Celestina. And when she looked across the room, she saw that her words had moved her mother. We could get you out of here tomorrow, Lipscomb suggested. I've got class tomorrow and Wednesday, but not on Thursday. Thursday it is, he said, clearly delighted to be receiving only a third of the fair market rental from his apartment. Thank you, Dr. Lipscomb. I'll keep track of what you're losing every month, and someday I'll pay it back to you. We'll discuss it when the time comes, and please call me Wally. The physician's long, narrow face, his undertaker face, ideal for the expression of unnameable sorrow, was not the face of a Wally. You expected a Wally to be freckled and rosy and round-cheeked and full of fun. Wally, Celestina said without hesitation, because suddenly she saw something of a Wally in his green eyes, which were livelier than they had been before. Champagne, then, and two shopping bags packed full of Armenian takeout. Subarek. Mujadira, chicken and rice birani, stuffed grape leaves, artichoke with lamb and rice, aruk, manti, and more. Following a Baptist grace, said by grace, Wally and the three white women, a fourth present in spirit, sat around the formica top table, 
feasting, laughing, talking about art and healing and baby care in the past and tomorrow. While up on Knob Hill, Nettie Nathick sat tuxedoed at a lacquer black piano, sprinkling diamond bright notes through an elegant room. Chapter 47 Still wearing his white pharmacy smock over a white shirt and black slacks, striding purposefully through the streets of Bright Beach, under a malignant gray twilight sky worthy of a weird tails cover, with ominous accompanying rhythm provided by wind-clattered palm fronds overhead, Paul Damascus headed home for the day. Walking was a part of a fitness regimen that he took seriously. He would never be called upon to save the world, like the pulp heroes and the tales he enjoyed. However, he had solemn responsibilities he was determined to meet, and to do so, he must maintain good health. In a pocket of his smock was a letter to the Reverend Harrison White. He hadn't sealed the envelope, because he intended to read to Perry, his wife, what he had written, and include any corrections she suggested. In this, as in all things, Paul valued her opinion. The high point of his day was coming home to Perry. They met when they were 13, married at 22. In May, they would celebrate their 23rd anniversary. They were childless. It had to be that way. Truthfully, Paul felt no regrets about missing out on fatherhood. Because they were a family of two, they were closer than they might have been if fate had made children possible. And he treasured their relationship. Their evenings together were comfortable bliss, though usually they just watched television, or he read to her. She enjoyed being read to, mostly historical novels and occasional mysteries. Perry was often fast asleep by 9.30, seldom later than 10 o'clock, while Paul never turned in earlier than midnight or 1 in the morning. In the later hours, to the reassuring susurration of his wife's breathing, he returned to his pulp adventures. This was a good night for television, to tell the truth at 7.30, followed by I Got a Secret, The Lucy Show, and The Andy Griffin Show. The new Lucy wasn't quite as good as the old show. Paul and Perry missed Desi Arnaz and William Frawley. As he turned the corner on a jasmine way, he felt his heart lift in expectation of the sight of his home. It wasn't a grand residence, a typical Main Street USA house, but it was more splendid to Paul than Paris, London, and Rome combined. Cities that he would never see and would never regret failing to see. His happy expectation thickened into dread when he spotted the ambulance at the curb. And in the driveway stood the Buick that belonged to Joshua Nunn, their family doctor. The front door was ajar. Paul entered in a rush. In the foyer, Hannah Ray and Nellie Otis sat side by side on the stairs. Hannah, the housekeeper, was gray-haired and plump. Nellie, Perry's daytime companion, could have passed for Hannah's sister. Hannah was too riven by emotion to stand. Nellie found the strength to rise, but having risen... She was unable to speak. Her mouth shaped words, but her voice deserted her. Halted by the unmistakable meaning of the expression on these women's faces, Paul was grateful that Nellie was briefly stricken mute. He didn't believe he had the strength to receive the news that she tried to deliver. The blessing of Nellie's silence lasted only until Hannah, cursed with speech, if not with sufficient strength to stand, said, We tried to reach you, Mr. Damascus, but you had already left the pharmacy. The pair of sliding doors to the living room archway stood half open. Beyond, voices drew Paul against his will. Spacious, the living room was furnished for two purposes. 
as a parlor on which to receive visiting friends, but also with two beds, because here, Paul and Perry slept every night. Jeff Dooley, a paramedic, stood just inside the sliding doors. He gripped Paul fiercely by the shoulder and then urged him forward. To Perry's bed, a journey of only a few steps, but farther than unseen Paris, farther than unwanted Rome. The carpet seemed to pull at his feet, to suck like mud under his shoes. The air was thick as liquid in his lungs, resistant to his progress. At the bedside, Joshua Nunn, friend and physician, looked up as Paul approached. He rose as if under a yoke of iron. The head of the hospital bed was elevated, and Perry lay on her back. Her eyes were closed. In the crisis, the rack holding her oxygen bottle had been rolled to the bed. The breathing mask lay on the pillow beside her. She rarely needed the oxygen. Today, needed, it hadn't helped. The chest respirator, which Joshua had evidently applied, lay discarded on the bed close beside her. She seldom required this apparatus to assist her breathing, and then only at night. During the first year of her illness, she had been slowly weaned off an iron lung. Until she was 17, she required the chest respirator, but eventually gained the strength to breathe unassisted. It was her heart, said Joshua Nunn. She always had a generous heart. After disease whittled Perry's flesh, leaving her so frail, her great heart, undiminished by her suffering, seemed bigger than the body that contained it. Polio, largely an affliction of younger children, had stricken her two weeks before her 15th birthday, 30 years ago. Ministering to Perry, Joshua had pulled back her blankets. The fabric of the pale yellow pajama pants couldn't disguise how terribly withered her legs were. Two sticks. Her case of polio had been so severe that braces and crutches were never an option. Muscle rehabilitation had been ineffective. The sleeves of the pajama top were pushed up, revealing more of the disease's vicious work. The muscles of her useless left arm had atrophied. The once graceful hand curled in upon itself, as though holding an invisible object, perhaps the hope she never abandoned. Because she enjoyed some limited use of her right arm, it was less wasted than her left, although not normal. Paul pulled down that sleeve of her pajamas. He gently drew the cover over his wife's ruined body, to her thin shoulders, but arranged her right arm on top of the blankets. He straightened and smoothed the folded back flap of the top sheet. The disease hadn't corrupted her heart, and it had left her face untouched as well. Lovely she was, as she had always been. He sat on the edge of the bed and held her right hand. She had passed away such a short time ago that her skin was still warm. Without a word, Joshua Nunn and the paramedic retreated to the foyer. The parlor door slid shut. So many years together, and yet such a short time. Paul can remember when he began to love her. Not at first sight, but before she contracted polio. Love came gradually, and by the time it flowered, its roots were deep. He could recall clearly when he had known that he would marry her. During his first year of college, when he had returned home for the Christmas break. Away at school, he had missed her every day, and the moment that he saw her again... An abiding tension left him, and he felt at peace for the first time in months. She lived with her parents then. They had converted the dining room to a bedroom for her. When Paul arrived with a Christmas gift, Perry was abed, 
wearing Chinese red pajamas, reading Jane Austen. A clever contraption of leather straps, pulleys, and counterweights assisted her in moving her right arm more fluidly than would otherwise be possible. A lapstand held the book, but she could turn the pages. He spent the afternoon with her and stayed for dinner. He ate at her bedside, feeding both himself and her, balancing the progress of his meal with hers, so they finished together. He had never fed her before, yet he wasn't awkward with her, yet she with him, and later what he remembered at dinner was the conversation, not the logistics. The following April, when he proposed to her, she wouldn't have him. You're sweet, Paul, but I can't let you throw your life away on me. You're this... This beautiful ship that'll sail a long way to fascinating places, and I would only be your anchor. A ship without an anchor can never be a rest, he answered. It's at the mercy of the sea. She protested that her ruined body had neither any comforts to offer a man, nor the strength to be a bride. Your mind is as fascinating as ever, he said. Your soul is beautiful. Listen, Pear, since we were 13, I was never primarily interested in your body. You flatter yourself shamelessly if you think it was all that special even before the polio. Frankness and tough talk pleased her, because too many people dealt with her as though her spirit was as frail as her limbs. She laughed with delight, but still refused him. Ten months later, he finally wore her down. She accepted his proposal, and they set a date for the wedding. Through tears that night, she asked him if the commitment he was making didn't frighten him. In truth... He was terrified. Although his need for her company was so profound that it seemed to arise from his marrow, a part of him marveled and trembled at his dedicated pursuit of her. Yet that evening, when she had accepted his proposal and asked if he wasn't frightened, he said, Not anymore. The terror he hid from her vanished with the recital of their vows. He knew from their first kiss as husband and wife that this was his destiny. What a great adventure they'd had together these past 23 years, one that Doc Savage might have envied. Caring for her in every sense of that word had made him a far happier man than he would otherwise have been, and a far better one. And now she didn't need him anymore. He gazed at her face, held her cooling hand. His anchor was slipping away from him, leaving him adrift. Chapter 48 you know, before I, you know, no, following a second night at the Sleepy Time Inn. Now, earlier, they had talked about how the spelling of that was, and I didn't go into detail with it because I was just, you know. But Sleepy Time Inn, first of all, this one is spelled S-L-E-E-P-I-E-T-Y-M-E-I-N-N-E. -E -E. Now, all of those things separately are annoying. That end, though, is highly egregious. Like, there's not even a way that you could fake that spelling. Like, that should be. Like, there's no way that I've ever seen an E at the end of N. And that just ogles, boggles my mind. Also, while I have a rule of refusing to sleep in motels anyway, I refuse to sleep in motels with cutesy names. Sleepy time in would never get my business. You know what else never gets my business? Do drop in. I hate the do drop in. And it feels like every state has a do drop in. And I hate them. I will never drop in. How about that? 
No, I do not want to drop in. It feels like a setup. Feels like y'all do a ritual sacrifice of a black person when they stop in. No, I do not wish to drop in. And it's always in a place like Washington or rural California or Oregon. I bet they have it on every corner in Montana. Like the ABC stores in Hawaii. By the way, stay out of Hawaii. They don't need y'all there. Following the second night at the Sleepy Time Inn, ugh, waking at dawn, Junior felt rested, refreshed, and in control of his bowels. He didn't quite know what to make of the recent unpleasantness. Symptoms of food poisoning usually appear within two hours of dining. The hideous intestinal spasms had rocked him at least six hours after he had eaten. Besides, if the corporal were food poisoning, he would have vomited, but he hadn't felt any urge to spew. He suspected the blame lay with his exceptional sensitivity to violence, death, and loss. Previously, it manifested as an explosive emptying of the stomach. This time, as a purging of lower realms. Tuesday morning, while he showered with a swimming cockroach that was as exuberant as a golden retriever in the motel's lukewarm water, Junior vowed never to kill again, except in self-defense. Now, I do feel like these dewdrop ends and sleepy time ends and happiness ends here and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I feel like that's one thing that they all have in common. Roaches. Bed bugs. Sperm on the sheets and blankets. Stains that just won't come out of the mattress. You don't know if it's piss, blood, or urine. Pillows that smell like smoke. Rooms that smell like smoke. Old white people with graying hair that's completely gone. And I'm talking men and women at the front desk. Skinny, yellow teeth, white people whose names are like Elroy and Jasper and Maud. And they just sit there like the overseers of everything evil that happens in the background. You know that they eat goulash and they don't season the salt. They don't, they don't put salt even as a, they don't believe in salt. They don't believe in seasoning. They think salt is the highest frame of seasoning and they don't believe in that either. And they just sit and you know what? You know what? Every, Every motel like this reminds me of the place that they sleep at in Schitt's Creek. That's what they remind me of. Like somebody should die here real soon. Yeah, where they don't even have like a bell to ding. You just come in and they're just sitting there. And when nobody's there, they just sit there. Like they're just a part of the fabric of the whole. Like, oh my God. Mm. Mm -mm. He had sworn this vow before. An argument could be made that he had broken it. Unquestionably, if he hadn't killed Vanadium, the maniac cop would have blown him away. That was clearly an act of self-defense. Only a dishonest or delusional man, however, could justify Victoria's killing in self-defense. To a degree, he had been motivated by anger and passion, and Junior was forthright enough to admit this. As Zed taught, in this world where dishonesty is the currency of social acceptance and financial success, you must practice some deceit to get along in life. But you must never lie to yourself, or you're left with no one to trust. 
This time, he vowed never to kill again except in self-defense, regardless of the provocation. This tougher condition pleased him. No one achieved significant self-improvement by setting low standards for himself. When he slid aside the shower curtain and got out of the bath, he left the cockroach basking in the wet tub, alive and untouched. Before leaving the motel, Junior quickly scanned 4,000 more names in the phone book, seeking Bartholomew. The previous day, confined to this room, he had sought his enemy through 12,000 listings. Cumulatively, 40,000 had been searched. On the road again, you know you want to sing that. I had to force myself not to sing that. But on the road again, with no luggage other than a box works to Caesar's Ed, Junior drove south toward San Francisco. He was excited about a prospect of city life. His years in sleepy Spruce Hills had been rich with romance, a happy marriage, and financial success. But that small town was lacking in the intellectual stimulation. To be fully alive, he must experience not merely physical pleasures of plenty, not only a satisfying emotional life, but a life of the mind as well. He chose a route that brought him through Marin County and across the Golden Gate Bridge. The metropolis, which he had never before visited, rose in splendor on hills above the sparkling bay. For one glorious hour, he followed an impetuous, random route through the city, marveling at the architecture, the stunning vistas, the thrilling plunge of the steeper streets. Soon, Junior was as drunk on San Francisco as he had ever been on wine. Here, intellectual pursuits and prospects for self-improvement were unlimited. Great museums, art galleries, universities, concert halls, bookstores, libraries, the Mount Hamilton Observatory. Less than a year ago, at a cutting-edge establishment in this very city, the first topless dancers in the United States appeared on stage. Now this compelling art form was practiced in many major cities, which have followed San Francisco's avant-garde daring and Junior was eager to enlighten himself by attending a performance right here where the dance innovation of the century had been born. By three o'clock, he checked into a famous hotel on Knob Hill. His room offered a panoramic view. In a fashionable men's shop off the lobby, he purchased several changes of clothes to replace what had been stolen. Alterations were completed, and everything was delivered to his room by six o'clock. By seven, he was savoring a cocktail in the hotel's elegant lounge. A tuxedo pianist played romantic music with high style. Several beautiful women, in the company of other men, flirted surreptitiously with Junior. He was accustomed to being an object of desire. This night, however, the only lady he cared about was San Francisco herself, and he wanted to be alone with her. Dinner was available in the lounge. Junior enjoyed a superb filet mignon with a split of fine Cabernet Sauvignon. The only bad moment in the evening came when the pianist played Someone to Watch Over Me. In his mind, Junior saw a quarter turning knuckle over knuckle, and he heard the maniac cop's droning voice. There's a fine George and Iron Gershwin song called Someone to Watch Over Me. You ever hear it, Enoch? I'm that someone for you, although not, of course, in a romantic sense. Junior had almost fumbled his fork when he recognized the tune. His heart raced. His hands were suddenly clammy. From time to time, customers across the cocktail lounge had dropped folding money into a fishbowl atop the piano. Tips for the musician. A few have requested favorite tunes. Junior hadn't paid attention to everyone who visited the pianist. 
though surely he would have noticed a certain stump in a cheap suit. The lunatic lawman was not at any of the tables. Junior was sure of that, because indulging his appreciation for lovely women, he had roamed the room repeatedly with his gaze. He hadn't paid close attention to those patrons seated at the bar behind him. Now he turned in his chair to study them. One manly woman, several womanly men, but no blocky figure that could have been the crazed cop even in disguise. Slow, deep breaths. Slow, deep. A sip of wine. Vanadian was dead, pounded with pewter and sunk in a flooded quarry, gone forever. The detective wasn't the only person in the world who liked someone to watch over me. Anyone in the lounge might have requested it. Or maybe this number was part of the pianist's usual repertoire. After the song concluded, Junior felt better. His heartbeat soon returned to normal. The damp palms of his hands grew dry. By the time he ordered creme brulee for dessert, he was able to laugh at himself. Had he expected to see a ghost enjoying a cocktail and free cashews at the bar? Chapter 49 Wednesday Fully two days after delivering honey raisin pear pies with Agnes, Eden worked up the nerve to visit Jacob. Although their apartments were above the garage, back to back, each was served by a separate exterior staircase. As often as either man entered the other's domain, they might as well have lived hundreds of miles apart. When together in Agnes's company, Edom and Jacob were brothers, comfortable with each other. But together, just the two, no Agnes, they were more awkward than strangers, because strangers had no shared history to overcome. Edom knocked. Jacob answered. Jacob backed away from the threshold. Edom stepped inside. They stood, not quite facing each other. The apartment door remained open. Edom felt uneasy in this kingdom of a strange god. The god that his brother feared was humanity, its dark compulsions, its arrogance. Edom, on the other hand, trembled before nature, whose wrath was so great that one day she would destroy all things, when the universe collapsed into a super-dense nugget of matter the size of a pea. To Edom, humanity was obviously not the greater of these two destructive forces. Men and women were a part of nature, not above it. And their evil was, therefore, just one more example of nature's malignant intent. They had stopped debating this issue years ago, however, neither men conceding any credibility to the other's dogma. Succinctly, Edom told Jacob about visiting Obadiah, the magician with the mangled hands. Then, when we left, I followed Agnes and Obadiah held me back to say, Your secret is safe with me. What secret? Jacob asked, frowning at Edom's shoes. I was hoping you might know, said Edom, studying the collar of Jacob's flannel green shirt. How would I know? It occurred to me that he might have thought I was you. Why would he think that? Jacob frowned at Edom's shirt pocket. We do look somewhat alike, Edom said, shifting his attention to Jacob's left ear. We're identical twins, but I'm not you, am I? Well, that's obvious to us, but not always to others. Apparently, this would have been some years ago. What would have been some years ago? When you met Obadiah. Did he say I met him? Jacob asked, squinting past Edom towards the bright sunlight at the open door. As I explained, he might have thought I was you, Edom said, staring at the neatly ordered volumes on the nearby bookshelves. Is he addled or something? No. 
He's got all his wits. Supposing he's senile, wouldn't he possibly think you were his long-lost brother or someone? He's not senile. If you ranted at him about earthquakes, tornadoes, erupted volcanoes, and all that stuff, how could he mistake you for me? I don't rant. Anyways, Agnes did all the talking. Returning his attention to his own shoes, Jacob said, So, what am I supposed to do about this? Do you know him? Edom asked, gazing longingly now at the open door from which Jacob had turned away. Obadiah Sepharad? Having spent most of the last 20 years in this apartment, not being the one who has a car, how would I meet a Negro magician? All right, then. As Edom crossed the threshold, moving outside to the landing at the top of the stairs, Jacob followed, proselytizing for his faith. Christmas Eve, 1940, St. Anselmo's Orphanage, San Francisco. Joseph Krepp killed 11 boys, ages 6 through 11, murdering them in their sleep and cutting a different trophy from each. And I hear a tongue there. 11? Edom asked, unimpressed. From 1604 through 1610, Elizabeth Bathory, sister of the Polish king, with the assistance of her servants, tortured and killed 600 girls. She bit them, drank their blood, tore their faces off with tongs, mutilated their private parts, and mocked their screams. Descending the stairs, Edom said, September 18, 1906, a typhoon slammed into Hong Kong. More than 10,000 died. The wind was blowing with such incredible velocity. Hundreds of people were killed by sharp pieces of debris. Splinter wood, spear point fence staves, nails, glass, driven into them with the power of bullets. One man was struck by a windblown fragment of a Han Dynasty funerary jar, which cleaved his face, cracked through his skull, and embedded itself in his brain. As Edom reached the bottom of the stairs, he heard the door close above him. Jacob was hiding something. Until he had spoken to Joseph Kreft, his every response had been formed as a question, which had always been his preferred method of avoidance when conversation involved a subject that made him uncomfortable. Returning to his apartment, Edom had to pass under the limbs of the majestically crowned oak that dominated the deep yard between the house and the garage. Head lowered, as if his visit to Jacob was a weight that bowed him. His attention was on the ground. Otherwise, he might not have noticed, might not have been halted by, the intricate and beautiful pattern of sunlight and shadow over which he walked. This was a California live oak, green even in winter, although its leaves were fewer now than they would be in warmer seasons. The elaborate branch structure reflected around him was an exquisite and harmonious maze overlaying a mosaic of sunlight green on grass. And something in its pattern subtly touched him, moved him, seized his imagination. He felt as if he were balanced on the brink of an astonishing insight. Then he looked up at the massive limbs overhead, and the mood changed. A sense of impending insight at once gave way to the fear that an unsuspected fissure in a huge limb might crack through at this precise moment, crushing him under a ton of wood, or that the big one, striking now, would topple the entire oak. Jacob fled back to his apartment. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, leave review on Spotify, Lee review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcast, copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. Thank you so much. Leave a donation on Patreon.com. You can also donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash SSCast 
or on the Good Pods app, there's a tip jar. Thank you again to everybody who listens to the show. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,